morning we have seen the Word, uh, we've experienced the Word through the Lord's Supper and sang the Word. Wow, thank you. Thank you to all who are involved. Danny, Brother Danny, thank you for leading us so well in the Lord's Supper this morning. Um, my favorite hymn is usually the one that's right in front of me that I'm getting ready to sing. And my favorite scripture um, is oftentimes the one that I'm getting ready to preach. Um, Exodus 13 is where we're going to be today. And it is, it is very powerful and we've got a lot of ground to cover there's a lot of application here, so let's just hold on tight. Um, let's see what the Lord has for us this morning. I titled this sermon, uh, Do This in Remembrance of Me. Do This in Remembrance of Me. God, in His kindness and His providence, allowed me to grow up in Posey County. If you, I see a lot of new faces. I'm Pastor Kurt, if you don't know who I am. Um, I began attending this church when I was three years old with my parents. My dad got out of the military and got a job at GE, which is now Sobic, uh, and we moved to the area, and upon the recommendation of a family member, we tried this church out, and this church has been ups and downs and uh, a lot of changes and things that go on, all for the better, really. Um, but I had the privilege of growing up in Posey County, and I do count it as a privilege, while far from a perfect place, I find it very difficult to find anything that compares with a Posey County fall. It isn't because of anything evidently sensational. It's not because of uh, Fest or River Days or the Fall Festival or anything like that. Uh, it's because my senses are engaged everywhere I turn, and those senses are tied to deep emotional ties to my land and my people. The, the whirring of the corn dryers and the smell of corn dust takes me back to sitting on the old red toolbox in the big red combine listening to David Bestie laugh at his own jokes. Or the swelling of pride in my eight-year-old chest as his father Paul Bestie let me drive the grain truck along the edge of the field. The sweetness of Farview Cider and it is Farview, not Fairview. For you Vandenberg County people, it is Farview Orchard. Farview Cider, on my lips, takes me back to cruising down Springfield Road on a Saturday morning with my mom, excited to catch a taste of that liquid gold. The smell of Posey County ash wood burning in a wood stove to take the chill off the morning reminds me of cutting firewood with Brother Lloyd Yonker when he was well into his 90s. Lloyd could run a tractor bucket better than any man I have ever known, and still that I do know. The pink sunsets and the Christmas crispness of the night air remind me of all the Friday night lights, all the time I spent under the Friday night lights on Memorial Field, right in the middle of Mount Vernon. And I could go on and on and on because this is how God has wired us. We are inherently nostalgic beings. He has given us amazingly complex senses tied to amazingly complex memories and brain function so that we can remember and we can feel a deep sense of connection and ties to each other and by his grace to him. And this is what Exodus 13 is about. God, through Moses, 
is writing this as a way of etching into the memory of God's people the delivering of them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. God is instituting events in their calendar that will take them back and engage their senses that they might remember. Remember. Now Moses is most likely not writing Exodus in real time. His his intended audience is the future generations of God's people. He's very explicit about that in the first two points, but then he goes back to narrating the story at the end of 13. But even the points of the narrative are calling future generations to remember the Lord. So let's read Exodus 13 in its entirety now together. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you have come out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord has brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen in all of your territory." You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of the Lord what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign, as shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. The law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, he swore to you and to your fathers and shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all the, first, all the firstborn that open the wound. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time you come time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the wound, but all the firstborn sons of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand, or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And now we go to the narrative part of the story. When Moses let the people, or excuse me, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. 
And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen and amen. There are five remembrances in this text that I want to express in four points today. All of their key words begin with P. Here they are. Remember the price and power of your redemption. Price and power of your redemption. That's verses 1 through 16. 17 and 18. Remember that God is watching out for his people through his providence. His providence. So power, price, providence so far. The third, remember that God will fulfill his promise. That's 18 and 20. And then finally, remember that God is always present with his people, 21 and 22. So power, price, providence, promise, and present. Say that five times fast, right? If you're a note taker, those will be helpful in keeping you on track. So let's begin early in our passage. In the first 16 verses, the Lord is giving the people of Israel two rituals to perform once they come into the land. Even though we know that they are going to have to spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, as Josh, Brother Josh Hammond said this week, they have to spend 40 years getting the Egypt kicked out of them. They are going to be living, in the, living out in the wilderness, living hand to mouth. Every day they will have to trust God and go out and collect manna. They're going to be following this pillar of cloud and fire. Once they come into the land and the Lord blesses as he has said he is going to, he knows that their tendency is going to be for them to start feeling like their success is because of their own efforts and their own ingenuity. They will need instituted, schedule-interrupting, life-altering reminders of the power and price of their redemption, and just whose hand it was that stretched out and brought them out of slavery from Egypt. We're going to skip the first two verses for now and come back to them in just a moment. Let's look at verses 3 through 10 to start. God is instituting the first of three major festivals that were celebrated by the people of God so that the very rhythms of their calendar would serve as a remembrance of the powerful redemption of the Lord. It was celebrated in the month of Abib, which is in the spring. And that will be important in just one moment. We'll come back to it, though. So first, there's three things I want to note about this instituted festival of the unleavened bread, the feast of the unleavened bread. First, notice in the passage the emphasis on how it was that they came out of the land of Egypt. By the mighty hand of God. Look at the text. By the power of the mighty hand of God, the powerful hand of the Lord that brought you out of this place. That's verse 3, verse 9, and verse 16. The Lord wants to be clear that it wasn't through the cunning of the people. It wasn't through the strength of their arm. It wasn't through Moses' leadership or courage. It was through God's powerful hand that they came out of Egypt. Notice next, it's over and over again emphasized that they were brought out of this particular situation. This is a passive form of this verb. This happened to them. They didn't do it. It happened to them. They were gathered and brought from the outside to the outside. 
verse 3, verse 4, verse 8, verse 9, verse 16. Five times all of these emphasize that the children of Israel are brought out of Egypt. Lastly, note, this is deliverance made personal. When they were using this festival to teach their children of the teach their children about the Lord, and they were asked to testify that this isn't to celebrate the deliverance of their forefathers who were actually there. Because remember, this was the festival that would begin being practiced when they got into the promised land. This was a festival that would be celebrated generation by generation by generation by people who weren't physically a part of the Exodus. But look at verse 8, what they're supposed to say even 20 generations from now. What the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This was to make it personal to them. And they were to eat no leaven, only unleavened bread for seven days. Ligon Duncan has helpful commentary here. Not bad for a Presbyterian. It says, God is giving Israel a concrete way of remembering and expressing what he has done by depriving themselves of the normally leavened bread. They are remembering the bread of haste that they had to make in the wake of God's deliverance in the Exodus. So just as we have a rationale for fasting in that the bodily deprivation reminds us of our need of the Lord, and this impels us to pray to him, also, the leavened bread reminds them of the work of God that he has done in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is the power of God, the power of God tied to the pure, untainted, unleavened bread. Okay? Then, so that's the feast of the unleavened bread. Then God commands them to redeem the firstborn of everything that opens the womb, both animal and human, by either by spilling the blood of a lamb on its behalf or by sacrificing that firstborn animal to the Lord. Now remember what just happened in the previous chapter from this. Because of the sin and the rebellion of the Egyptians against them and against God, God killed every firstborn human and livestock of that stiff-necked people. The wages of sin is what? Death. He is saying to people, the people, you were not saved of your own merit. Justice is not satisfied based upon your goodness. You are only different from the Egyptians because I have chosen you and your redemption is a bloody business. You are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Your life is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and the price is steep. The price is wrath poured out upon an innocent Lamb. Remember I told you about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread being during the month of Abib, which would be akin to like our April. It's the springtime. What happens in an agricultural society in the springtime? What do animals do? They give birth. Calves are born. Lambs are born. These two rituals of unleavened bread and redeeming the firstborn go hand in hand. They are the power and price of of redemption on display for the people interrupting their daily lives that God might remind them what he has done for them and then 
1,400 years or so later, during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Jesus gathers his disciples for a Passover meal. And he took the unleavened bread, the symbol of the power of God's deliverance, and he said, this has always been about me, the Son of God, whose body is about to be broken. And he took the fruit of the vine, wine, a symbol of the fat of the land of Israel, its first fruits, if you will, and said, this is my blood spilled for you, the price of your redemption. Jesus is the one and only firstborn son of God, that with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm is here to deliver and redeem God's people forever. Brothers and sisters, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he was saying, from now on, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, don't remember the temporary deliverance of earthly Israelites from Egypt. Remember the eternal deliverance of heavenly Israelites from the clutches of sin and death. And thus we have the Lord's Supper. And this is why I am an advocate for a robust Lord's Supper. Coming and taking the supper with brothers and sisters in Christ is an intentional inconvenience. It shouldn't be treated like an add-on to a worship service. It should not be rushed. Brother Danny did a great job with it this morning, framing it for us. We must take it as often as it is feasible, and we must perform it with great intentionalism and great sincerity. We must guard it. You must be picky about the men who serve it to you. They must be set aside to do so, so that it is framed correctly. And if something is off, it should be said. It should be rebuked. It should be exhorted towards the biblical image of the Lord's Supper. Without systematized, intentional, rhythmic, calendar-impacting, meaningful reminders, we are prone to wander like the Israelites, prone to leave the God who delivers by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. There's one more aspect to these remembering ordinances that God is giving to his people in Exodus 13 before we move past them into the narrative portion of this text. In both the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Consecration of the Firstborn, Moses mentions their use as teaching tools for the next generation. Really, more than teaching tools. He wants them to be like, what's it say? Frontlets between your eyes or markings on the back of your hand. Have you ever written something on your hand so that you'll remember it? Really important, like don't forget, right? Or maybe wear a piece of jewelry on your hand, like a bracelet. Or, or a wedding ring to remind you of reality, keeping you mindful of the roles that you have. 
the promises that you have made. The object here isn't that a couple times a year they would go through these motions and remember while they were performing, just as they were that, that for that week, they were just performing these ordinances before God. Rather, the goal is that they would form strong memories around these calendar events and bonds with each other and with the Lord would be tightened. These rhythmic rituals given to them by God would serve as a tool to disciple the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and so on and so on and so on. And Paul picks up on this same concept in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. If we could throw that up there real quick on the screen. Ephesians 6 verse 4. This is important, so I want to look at it. says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word discipline is the Greek word paideia, paideia. And it's this whole, it's a whole concept. There have been volumes written on the concept of paideia. This concept is, it really is another whole sermon, but suffice it to say that it is defined by building an all-encompassing culture around a child that shapes not only their immediate thoughts, but the lens by which they view the entire world. That is paideia. A good teacher not only gets students to ask questions and engage with the material in the classroom, but also around the dinner table and are with their friends when they rise up and when they lie down, and when they walk by the way. This is paideia. The Lord is building holy calendared rhythms to create a paideia for the people of God coming out of Egypt, and he has done that for us too. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Work six days. Come gather out with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. <laughs> oh, that's archaic, Pastor Kurt. Is it? Let me tell you something about it. It works. We're Americans, right? We like pragmatism. Do what works. Six days working, one day worshiping the Creator. It works. If at all possible... and you get one scheduled day off of the week, trust me in this, test me in this, schedule it for Sunday. Schedule it for Sunday. When considering a position, be sure to factor in whether that job will keep you away from the Lord's people on the Lord's day. We take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the month in this church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 29 is the text that you can use to prepare yourself for the Lord's Supper. Prepare yourself for it. Show up for it. 
with excitement to remember our Passover lamb. And when your sons and daughters ask why they can't be on the travel all-star baseball, soccer, wrestling, dance team that plays all its games on Sundays, don't hem-haul around and feel guilty about it. Tell him, because with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, our Lord Jesus Christ delivered us from hell and gives us eternal life. It's the paideia. Give him the goods. He defeated death and rose from the grave on a Sunday. It's his day, and we gladly and with great joy in our hearts spend it, spend it with him, concerned for him. It's paideia. The calendar is a big part of the paideia culture of your home. When you, what you do and where you spend your time communicates to your children what is important according to your worldview. Teach a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Bind redemption and deliverance between his eyes and write it on his hand. Sing it to them in the great in the in the cradle, preach it to him in the pews, read it to him at the supper table, and by God's grace, he will sing it to you as your voice fades. He will read it to you as your eyes dim, and he will preach it over you as you lie in the grave. That's paideia. God is giving his people that gift, remembrance, and he has given us that gift as well. Let's use it. Let's use it. Let's, let's, not, let's not glean what we feel is right from what the culture says is right. Let's glean our schedules from the word of God. Can I get a witness? And let's watch as he blesses us for it. Let's stop making excuses and just obey. Just obey. Moses now shifts gears from instituting these remembering rituals for when they are in the land and jumping back to the narrative of what is going on as they are leaving Egypt. But keep in mind that Exodus is written for future generations, so he is still helping them to remember what God is doing for his people as he is calling them to faith. So the second remembrance. Remember that God, this is verse 17 and 18, remember that God is watching out for his people through his providence, through his providence. And this is referring to the way that God took them up out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. God knows his people and he rules mindfully of their needs. Our sovereign God who rules everything in the universe. Moses is telling us that God takes into account the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities, the circumstances, the fears and desires of his people. He takes into consideration his people as he rules the world. Moses spells out for us here that God did not send his people by way of the land of the Philistines. It was a way that would have been heavily garrisoned. This would have been 
kind of conflicted territory between the Egyptians and it would have been like no man's land, between the Egyptians and the Canaanite tribes. There would have been constant war there. It was the shortest way to go. He tells us why. They weren't ready. Now they left Egypt. It did say they they left ready to fight. But God said they're not ready for that fight. So I'm not going to take them that way. They weren't ready for that kind of war. They would have fled back to Egypt at the first sign of trouble of that magnitude. Think about it. God doesn't send them the quickest way. In his provincial kindness, he sends them into the wilderness away from the carnage of the north. And he sends them to the edge of the Red Sea so that what can happen? What happens next? Pharaoh comes out with a great big army and pins them right up against the side of that thing. And then what happens? He delivers them again. Is there not a mighty application for us here about the providence of God? There is nothing that takes place outside the plan and purview of God. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. When he puts you in a hard spot, brothers and sisters, he has orchestrated that hard spot. He has tailor-made it just for you. No more than you can handle because he's taken that into consideration. He has tailor-made that hard spot for you. For your good. For his glory. Furthermore, remember this. He has numbered your days. And nothing will befall you outside of his will. That knowledge, what I just said is, the implications are immense. That knowledge, knowledge that you are, let's just say it, invincible until he calls you home. It reminds me of of the book of Job. When Satan has to get permission to lay a finger on Job, like a lapdog, he yups for table scraps from God, from the sovereign God of all the universe. That knowledge should give you boldness to live out what your live out your life in the duties that God has given you without fear. You are invincible until he calls you home. This is the underpinning of what Paul is saying when he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's all in his hands. And Moses continues the narrative on. Remember, thirdly, so we have remember the power and the price of redemption. Remember the providence of God. Thirdly, remember that God will fulfill his promise. Verses 18 19 and 20. Really, it's just 19 and 20. This is a weird little couple verses. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. What in the world is that? What's going on here? Why is Moses taking bones? Seems like a strange place to talk about Joseph's bones. Moses exhumes the remains of Joseph... The patriarch, remember Joseph was the, would have been the Hebrew that came into 
Egypt, and Moses is the Hebrew that's taking the people out of Egypt. So Joseph, the patriarch, and he's carrying these bones. He's preparing to take them with them to Canaan. Joseph had extracted a commitment from the sons of Jacob, his brothers, that they would take his body out of Egypt when they left. In Genesis 50, 24, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you and surely bring you up from this land to the land which he has promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph had made the sons of Jacob swear they wouldn't leave him in Egypt and that they'd bring him out of Egypt. And this isn't just some sentimental thing like I'm living, I, you know, you heard me give the Posey County diatribe at the beginning of this thing. Most likely, if I move somewhere else in the country because God leads me that way, I'm probably going to say, hey, tote my bones back to Poco because I don't want to be put in the ground anywhere except where God, you know, God's country, Posey County, Indiana. Right? This is not evidently that. Okay? This isn't just sentimental. This isn't just sentimentalism on the part of Joseph. It is sentimentalism in some ways. But rather... Joseph isn't from the land of Canaan. This is an expression of his belief in the promise of God. He's saying to his brothers, I know that God is going to bring you out of Egypt 400 years before it happens, mind you. I know he's going to do it. And therefore, when he does, you pull my body out of the ground and you take me with you. This is an expression of the faith of the patriarch, and I'm not just making this up. Hebrews 11.22, Joseph is mentioned in that hall of faith passage in Hebrews 11 exactly for this reason. By faith, Joseph, this is what Hebrews 11.22 says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. It's his faith. God's promises that are coming to pass and fulfilling the promise to Joseph is a visceral, visual representation of God being a promise-fulfilling God. Joseph had faith in God in his life and in his death. He lived and died in such a way that he believed the promises of God. There is a serious application point for us here as believers, brothers and sisters, Remembering and believing in the promises of God should impact the way that we live, obviously, right? But it should also impact the way that we die. God has promised, here's the promise, God has promised that Jesus is going to return and the dead in Christ will resurrect and just as Jesus' body was glorified, so shall ours be as well. That is orthodox Christian belief. The belief is in the bodily resurrection of the dead. This is the reason that historically Christians bury their dead and do not intentionally destroy their bodies. I'm not saying that God lacks the power to reconstitute human remains on the day of the Lord. He can and he will do that. But a Christian funeral, as with all of our worship, is about testifying to the living to the living people that are in, in, gathered in about the sure and certain promises of God and a powerful part of that, laying of, of that 
ceremony is laying a body to rest in anticipation of the day, the day that Christ will come and the dead will rise. So we, like Joseph, have the opportunity in our death to declare our faith and the promises of God to our loved ones, to help them remember that God has made promises to his people and that he is going to keep them. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I exhort you this morning, if you have not done so, make a plan for your funeral service. I got some weird looks from a gathering of teenagers a couple weeks ago because I said, hey, you guys are going to die. One out of one people die. <gasps> right? You're going to die. I'm going to die. Make a plan for your funeral service. When you are making that plan, seek to exalt Christ and lift up his promises with every aspect of that service. Make your wishes known, like Joseph did, that you want Christ exalted and you want his promises made clear at your funeral and with the treatment of your remains. Pastor Matt and I are happy to help you think through that, and if the Lord gives us enough days, it will be our joy and privilege to honor your wishes to you made in faith, just as Moses honored Joseph. We do not live as unbelievers, brothers and sisters, and we do not die like them either. We are the ones who have hope. We have promises that are ours. Let us live and die like it, remembering and hoping in the sure and certain promises of God. I keep my funeral wishes in a cabinet in my office. If you outlive me, make sure you bring your cough drops that day because you're going to sing a lot, okay? And clear out your schedules because it's going to be long, all right? Final point of remembrance from this text is this. So it's power and price. It's power and price. It is providence, it's promise, and it is presence. Remember that God is always present with his people. Remember, this narrative was to help them remember God's providence, promises, and finally he's giving them his presence. And the pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, his powerful presence was made known to them day and night. It was a visual representation of him. Verse 22 indicated the continuous nature of this presence. It's why cloud and fire, during the day and during the night, it was always there. It never went away. There are several places in the Old Testament where clouds and fire are associated with the presence of God. In the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear in John 14 and John 16, and Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 3, that the manifestation of God's nearness to us now as new covenant believers is no less spectacular, but actually greater than the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. 
In John chapter 16, Jesus says that the reason that he sent his Holy Spirit, the Comforter, was in order that we might enjoy the continual comfort and presence of God. And in Acts and in 1 Corinthians, it's made clear that the Shekinah glory of God manifested here in Exodus 13 as fire and cloud manifested in the tabernacle later on with Moses now takes residence where? In the heart of every single believer. That's how near God is to you. Remember with me this morning, what did Jesus say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's there. He's with us. It's not only the incarnation of the Son in which he draws near to us to show us his presence in the supper, but also it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in which he makes God to be present with you, comforting you, strengthening you, guiding you, stabilizing you, giving you peace, even as we walk through the wilderness or through the valley of the shadow of death. Remember, God is with you. Boy, that sounds so cliche, doesn't it? But it's not. When you're pinned against the Red Sea, man, we're blessed people. You know that? Like, I was thinking about this the other day. There's just really, God has really protected us from just great tragedy in this church family. I've been here for a while, and I, I can count on one hand the number of times there's just been tragedy. But it'll come. God will orchestrate for you, for us. He will tailor-make suffering for our good, and He will pin us against the Red Sea so that He can deliver us from it. In the meantime, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. Isn't it? Th- imagine the scene by the Red Sea, which I don't want to get too far into it because I'll be stealing Matt's thunder. Pastor Matt's thunder, it's coming. But They're pinned by the Red Sea, crying out to Moses, saying, Moses, oh, you just drug us out here. We could have died in Egypt. All the while, there is a pillar of cloud and fire just... Remember. Remember God's presence with us, in you. So what do God's people need to remember that will guide them whether they wander in the wilderness or they dwell in the promised land? Remember that we are redeemed by the power of God and at a steep price. Remember that God is watching out for us through His providence. Remember that He keeps His promises. And finally, remember that He is always present with us. Brothers and sisters, let's take about 30 seconds to meditate on these things, and then I'll close this in prayer.